You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. My name is Jamie Lee Gonzalez. This week, Amjo Hall interviews Stephanie Allen, a nonprofit real estate developer looking to create housing justice for Vancouverites through her work. Stephanie is also a leader at the Hogan's Alley Society, working to revive the social, political, cultural, and economic histories of Vancouver's Black communities through the delivery of housing, social spaces, education, health, and intergenerational linkage. Stephanie was recently named one of Van Meg's Power 50. She has a wealth of knowledge on housing in Vancouver and is helping to pave the way for women of color to take a role in the development of housing in our city, diversifying the understanding of what is truly needed to make this a livable city. Welcome to Below the Radar. We're here this week uh, with Stephanie Allen. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you. Yeah, great uh, that you could be with us today to talk about um, a topic that's of, on everyone's minds in Vancouver. You can't go very far at a social gathering without talking about uh, the cost of housing uh, in this town. And uh, I know that you've done uh, a lot of work both in the private sector, but also in the nonprofit housing development world, uh, working with BC Housing and now with uh, Catalyst. But wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you uh, found yourself working uh, in this area and uh, what you're finding in terms of what the big questions are for you in terms of how we think about affordable housing, particularly in an urban setting like Vancouver. Yeah, I I came to affordable housing from the private sector. I I just had a social justice lean to myself. And when the downturn happened in around 2010, I found myself going, okay, I'm having a hard time finding work. And I really wanted to do something that was, you know, meaningful. So um, went looking for that opportunity and ended up with BC Housing. And as you said, after six years there, I've been with Catalyst now for just over a year and a half. And I think the big questions about affordable housing, and this is national, this is obviously not just in Vancouver, it's really a question of who has a right to be in the city um, and where do people have a, an opportunity to live and does that housing adequately meet their needs in a way that offers dignity um, and and the types of things that we expect out of the, the provision of public good. And with the federal government, uh, you know, in the 90s, rolling back their provision of public housing, what used to be thought of as public, and now, uh, and, and for decades being out of that game, working only with transfer payments to provinces who, if themselves, would match funds and, and offer programming. Um, we've had this now, this, this desert that has happened, uh, and it's accumulated the impacts uh, over time. So we're all scrambling um, now and, and working very diligently to offer solutions and come up with creative ways to harness uh, the programs that do change. Um, and we're in, a, we're in a very fortunate funding environment right now. The, the federal government has come back with the National Housing Strategy, and um, the, the new NDP government is quite aggressively funding housing, which is exciting. And so working with uh, in these conditions to to try and deliver housing in a way that's um, 
meeting all of the standards that every developer has to, market developer has to, um, but doing so below market, below the costs. So very, very challenging work and lots of people thinking about it. And, and you know, there's um, obviously in these uh, questions and thinking through what spatial justice uh, might mean here, and we're in these overlaid contexts of settler colonialism, um, in a context which we did have um, social housing being built in a fairly robust way from the early 70s to the early 90s. And as you mentioned, this kind of rollback that happened with uh, different levels of government. And uh, now as we uh, begin 2019, uh, where all three levels of government are you know, attempting to be reengaged in some kind of way, this is still a very different environment than when there was a kind of template that people were working under. And there were uh, contexts of institutional memory in these bureaucracies of how to redo and create these types of deals. Um, one of the challenges that gets brought up often in the specific case of, of Vancouver is around uh, land costs and costs of construction as one of the barriers to uh, creating uh, this supply. And I'm wondering um, your thoughts on that. Yeah, land is one of the larger challenges here in the Lower Mainland, the cost of land, because nonprofits can't go out and pay market for land. So we're not able to go and, and compete with the market developers who are going to be working with you know a, a significant margin of profit and therefore can take certain risks. Um, our risks are different, of course. If you offer affordable housing in the city, there will be a wait list for it. But the ability to pay uh, for land is just not, a, it's not feasible. Um, so if there's government that comes to the table with a specific intention to look at acquisitions, then there's opportunities there. But the majority of the opportunities involve land that's either already publicly owned through the government or owned by a not-for-profit. That's where most of the opportunities currently exist when you're talking about land. Those not-for-profits don't necessarily have to be offering housing right now. They could be churches. They could be other community-based organizations that are doing programming work and maybe having uh, older buildings that are, that are no longer functional and they have to look at redevelopment. So as they think about redevelopment or they think about repurposing, that's when they may start to think about, well, we could densify, we could look at adding housing uh, above. So you're, you're right. It's the, land is the, the, one of the largest barriers. Construction costs also a barrier. Um, and funny enough, it's materials are a part of it, but labor is a considerable part of the uh, the challenges with a construction cost right now because we've been having a boom for quite a while. The market is busy, the nonprofit sector is busy, and people can't afford to live here. So getting labor to work on these projects is very tough and it, it comes at quite a cost. So we don't have a nonprofit construction industry yet, although that would be awesome. Um, so those folks are, are you know, you pay, you pay what, what the price is. And so those combining factors at this point you know, it's a, it's a simple equation we say often in our work. You can't pay market for land, market for construction and design, and deliver below market housing. Uh, so you have to find savings somewhere in there. So Catalyst as a not-for-profit, of course, we have the profit component removed. Um, and we look for opportunities to partner on land um, with groups that own land or governments that offer land uh, for, the, for public housing. Now, in places like the city of Vancouver, there is also public infrastructure being funded like SkyTrain or other types of things that drive up 
values of land and with the new council that we have now and there's been motions around a land value capture tax uh, for example but are there ways from a regulatory uh, point of view that you think cities could be doing more in terms of of uh, bringing out and ensuring um, a non-profit or below market um, housing that's affordable uh, to people because also the investment in public infrastructure oftentimes can also result in displacement of people as well yeah, it's a it's a very complicated um, proposition, right? Because we we want these infra infrastructure investments, we need transit, and we need all these components, but unfortunately, the land surrounding that those 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 infrastructure projects immediately start to speculate. I've heard rumors about what's been happening along the Broadway uh, corridor line. Uh, I heard something astronomical about the the, the Wendy site and how much that sold for. Um, so absolutely, uh, I think the municipality has to look at things that curb that um, that speculation by by threatening you know hey you may go ahead and buy land and you may speculate and think you're going to develop a you know a market building here and sell it for 2500 a foot but we are expecting to capture a significant portion of that that at least starts to temper the runaway kind of um, wildness that can happen. Um, so that, that I think is a positive step. I think we also have to be very intentional about uh, these things going and thinking them through, thinking housing through with infrastructure at the same time. Um, the province has uh, offered municipalities this opportunity to do rental only zoning. And I don't know much about how it's being implemented yet, um, but what a wonderful idea to think about where there's opportunities to institute this rental only zoning in these areas that would otherwise catch fire uh, with speculation. Um, and, and so, you know, when we look at um, planning and, and city councils and the, the work that they do, it's if they don't set an intention uh, uh, to deliver um, equitable, accessible, affordable housing and rather default to the neoliberal status quo of the market will deliver the solutions and let's pray for a trickle down to eventually fall down onto someone that is not able to reach those market prices. It's That's the failure. And we've done that for so long. And we see what the result is. Growing inequality in our cities, uh, growing uh, social problems that people are facing that are compounded by their lived experiences of poverty and insecurity. And we're failing. Uh, so it's it's a there's a, a mandate here. And I think people have been, um, you know, whatever your political leanings, uh, cities do act locally, but they do live within a larger structure. So uh, our government and our systems in Canada and the financial systems and immigration systems, all these things do prevail and they live out at the local level. But there has to be, I think, and there is, and what's interesting about Canada is even though we all have the same federal government and a lot of the same institutions and systems, different cities are approaching things differently. And even in our own region, um, you see aggressive moves by some municipalities for affordable housing and other municipalities that say it's not our problem. So uh, this is w the, the demand I think that citizens have to make, um, community organizations have to make on their, on their uh, local governments. I think one of the questions that come up when you see the massive divides in 
Vancouver in comparison to, say, a city like uh, Montreal. This question of home ownership really, I think, needs to be put on the table a little bit as to is that the end goal that we're looking for? If you look along the Canby Street um, corridor um, with the SkyTrain and the type of development that's gone on there or Oak Ridge Mall development, for example, in terms of what the costs of those housing places are. When I talk to people who have um, kids um, in the city and are uh, renters, you know, the, the buying a single family home isn't really on the table from a financial point of view. But what they are looking for is a kind of tenure that if they are going to rent, that they're not going to be evicted willy nilly in terms of the way um, uh, tenancy laws had been watered down and some areas have been strengthened. But there's still a challenge uh, around how to stay in a place in terms of tenure and how we can create that tenure either through the nonprofit or other forms of development. And in the civic election, much was talked about in the city of Vancouver, but are we going far enough here to actually have the kind of facts on the ground where we'll get the type of units that are going to actually rearrange um, uh, the uh, the rents and the tenure in a, in a way that will stabilize the, the, the housing market here? It's a great question because tenure is everything, right? Yeah. If you're a family and you are li- trying to live in the city, and you are living in someone's rented condo, um, th- there's a lot of risk that that person may want the private use of it. They may sell it. The new owner may not want it. So it's a very insecure supply of rental housing there. Um, you have, of course, the nonprofit sector who who has a, a lot of existing supply, but also new supply. And one of the challenging parts about the new supply is that um, we have to income test people that move in. And those folks have to demonstrate that their incomes are fitting within the affordability requirements of both the municipality and perhaps other government structures. Um, If that family starts to do a little better, and it's a sing- let's say it's a single mom with two kids, and because of the stability of that housing, she's able to get better employment, better educational training. Now kids don't just have to be, you know, only just going to school with the clothes on their back. They might be able to pay for sports or music lessons, you know, everything that parents might want to do for their kids. But unfortunately, her income's going up. And now her income might actually start to exceed the limit for that housing. That immediately is a disincentive. Um, for what we're trying to accomplish with, by helping people do better in their lives and 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 um, improve their social and economic situation. At the same time, the nonprofit is like, well, but we need this housing for people who need it. So this is actually another challenge. Um, and I think why a lot of people are still apprehensive about the nonprofit model in municipalities that make those requirements of, of affordability. And um, you know, I think it's why a lot of people still are quite romanced by the, the co-op uh, model and find it very appealing because it's there's a bit of self-governance there. There's an idea that, you know, we will decide how folks will pay. Those who can afford more will pay more. Those who can who can afford more will balance this out. All those principles are great. Unfortunately, co-ops have also been sites of discrimination and exclusion. Um, The co-op board having the say, and if those are people represented from privileged classes, they sometimes will exclude other people and racialized people or indigenous people, uh, et cetera. So there's, it's a very challenging um, situation and it's, and it, I don't think there's a simple answer, but I think if we 
if we're guiding ourselves by uh, the value of equity and justice, then um, we've got to look at solutions that actually don't penalize people for improving their situation in life and that actually allow them to stay where they want to be because their kids are in school and this is the right thing. Um, it's there's no easy answer, but I but tenure has to be a part of this conversation um, in ways that uh, allow people to grow and contribute and develop the actual social connections we so desperately are saying we don't have in Vancouver and we want to have. We want to be parts of communities and feel connected. So it's a difficult thing, and um, and I don't think there's an easy answer. Yeah, there's been some uh, private sector incentivization um, uh, attempts uh, in terms of trying to lock up a little bit more density, either with like laneway houses or attempts at uh, zoning for duplexes, which has gone kind of backward and forward at the city of Vancouver. One of the critiques of that is that it oftentimes leaves uh, the equity in the hands of existing homeowners, that mm -hmm. those who might uh, come in are either going to be renting that additional space or uh, in some sense, it doesn't actually... Um, uh, create that kind of equity or justice that people are are looking for. But are there uh, forms of private sector incentivization that you think could be helpful in terms of a healthy environment where density is being uh, built up alongside a non not for profit sector model or state uh, government built model that would be uh, good for a, a city a metro region like Vancouver? I, I think it's you know it's it's a sector I've been out of for a while, but um, the market incentives right now are have been so lucrative for condominium product and um, the ability to get in, get out, make your profit and move on. Um, so it's been, that's the Rental 100 pro, uh, program came along in the city of Vancouver to incentivize and laneways, as you said, and these moves towards densifying single family neighborhoods are, are important moves. But you're right, they don't go far enough to share the value that is being created by um, appreciating land values that homeowners have not themselves you know, sweated off their brow to create. It is the nature of Vancouver being a global city. It is a it is a, re a result of all these other federal issues, and you know, Canada being a stable country, our economy being stable, Vancouver having great weather. Like, there's a lot of factors that have driven our our um, uh, the the value of these single family neighborhoods. And you're right, the 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 lion's share will go to the homeowner if they decide to sell or or to dent. So two things, I think, um, and I'm going to say this and it's probably going to raise some eyebrows, but when uh, chattel slavery was uh, trying to be abolished in America, it was uh, the most significant financial impact on those slave owners to ha give up this very lucrative property that they held. It was a ma it, that's why they went to war and they died for it. Um, looking at people and telling them that there's a justice problem in the nature of their ownership of property is a fight immediately. It's a very tough thing. Um, but the the reason we have to talk about this, I think, in ways that both involve incentive and just political leadership is because it is fostering such a major growth of inequality. So uh, it takes a political will, I think, to look carefully and seriously and saying, you know, I, we may upset a block of people, but this is the way we drive towards justice, just as they did in the time of, you know, the abolishment of, of enslavement. 
So that's one thing. But I think, you know, the programs such as Rental 100, um, for them to be, I think, more towards what we want to accomplish in the city is that they they actually have restrictions that those 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 units stay affordable or sorry stay rental they don't ever have the opportunity to become privatized or condos um or whether there's affordable housing that's being offered as a component as a market developer that there's no like 10 year term 20 year term i think for me it's one of the criticisms i hold of cmhc their programs do um offer opportunities to market developers to take advantage of these programs and deliver market or deliver rental affordable rental but their their limit of affordability is only 20 years so imagine a community that gets built up and then immediately there's that significant swing from that from where that was affordable um, people living there to now a swing towards either being privatized or the rents jacking this is happening in toronto it's happening across the country in a lot of these older um rental buildings that were under the this program and now the the affordability covenants up and hey it's it's fair game so I think the 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 teeth has to be, have to be in those project in those programs to to hold the market developers and there's enough institutional investors that look at the long game and say okay you know we're going to park money into rental housing they do it in other parts of the country and we, we know we're going to have this return over time because we're a pension or we're something else and it's there's a financial incentive and there's no uh, urgency to sell that off. So harnessing those kinds of things, I know there's some other great um, financial uh, uh, institutions that have formed across Canada to specifically incentivize. There's social purpose investors that are trying to incentivize the creation of affordable housing. So somewhere where cities have their power to marry that with this this movement is a way to, I think, get affordable housing that's preserved in perpetuity. And of course, the nonprofit sector, who that's their mission to do it, they're, they're going to be doing that in, in forever. Yeah. And certainly when you talk to people who were involved in uh, developing rental in the 60s and 70s, they really did rely on financing from pension funds and other places because it was a stable place to park your money, get your 7 8% uh, return mm-hmm. over the long term. And it was uh, incentivized through public policy. And you throw in uh, the expansion of condominiums in the 80s and and the returns being uh, much higher over a shorter period of time. Is it, uh, is it time for um, governments to be looking at disincentivizing certain forms of housing development that do actually work against these other goals that you're talking about think, around equity and justice? Like yeah, the, I think that's, I think that's got to be the case. I don't, I just don't think there's enough carrot to, to really move the needle in the way that we need to move it. Um, because it's, I mean, I think I just read, uh, one of these reports from one of these global agencies of one of the, you know, the trends to watch in 2019 that are going to destabilize the world. And there's various things on there. And one of them is the growth of income inequality. Um, this is a, a major issue and we are not addressing it. I don't think in the urgency it needs to be addressed. Um, and so, and I think it was up there with climate, um, climate impact. So it absolutely, if, if there's a, if there's a, a political will. And I think those of us who care about this have to demonstrate that to um, political uh, uh, candidates and leaders and say, this is what we want to see. Um, because right now the the status quo has been the stronger voice and the status quo has been the more um, uh, influential voice perhaps. And so I think we've got to continue to put the pressure on seeing the needle move in another direction. And I think disincentivizing um, market developers like 
I know that that where everybody's afraid of, of hurting the economy and hurting those things. But if we don't take lessons and say, let's diversify our economies in ways that people can still make great incomes, but that those the, the capture of public of public equi- equity and public wealth is not all transferred into private hands, right? When you buy an airspace parcel above a building, that belongs to all of us right now. And we're privatizing it and giving it away in a, in a way that is a rezoning bylaw with a bit of a capture. But I would argue not enough of a capture, not when there's so many hundreds of millions of dollars that are being made in profit. When uh, Maloon Qatari, the former UN Special Rapporteur on Housing um, for the UN, came uh, through Vancouver on his last visit a couple of years ago, he called Vancouver an apartheid city. And when he originally wrote a report on Canada, he visited Vancouver in 2007, and, and uh, it, it resonates a lot with what you're talking about. So I think your your words are backed up a, a lot by a lot of experts who are talking about um, um, equity. One thing I want to uh, bring up as well, I know that you've been doing work uh, with uh, the whole Hogan's Alley project, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, that work that you're doing. Sure. It's been um, quite an uh, amazing journey, I think life-changing for those of us that have been working on it, um, not only to stand up in a city where we're just 1.3% of the population and we are completely erased from public policy, from uh, from visibility in a, in a, any kind of major way, yet still suffer um, hyper visibility by just being black in our bodies and walking through the streets and drawing the attention of police or drawing the attention when we walk into fancy stores. So to be able to uh, kind of come together around this this project, and for those who don't know, Hogan's Alley was a community. It was uh, in the southeast, southwest corner of Strathcona. It's where black folks um, who came here and migrated to Canada around the late 1800s, early 1900s settled. And they settled there uh, for a number of reasons. One, uh, it was the multicultural community. Strathcona was where you'd find um, visible minorities and people who were Italian, Greeks, and considered ethnic white people at that time. And so that's where they were allowed to be. And um, they weren't welcome other places in the city. Um, and uh, Harlan Bartholomew, who was the first, who drafted the, te- the city's first plan, was an avowed white supremacist dedicated to segregation. And he drafted plans across North America, um, really uh, based on the whole notion St. of- St. Louis. St. Louis, yeah. yeah. I just kind of discovered this, mm. this fact in my research about how he designed that city and many other cities to specifically put um, white affluent people in one part of town and and call that single family zoning. It was a workaround from the U.S. Supreme Court's um, decision that you couldn't actually zone for race. He found a workaround. You put really affluent homes in this area with no commercial, no industry, and tenant uh, tenement apartments or, or multifamily uses in another part of the city, and you couple that with uh, commercial uses and industrial uses. And back then, of course, people just polluted. So it was th- those were the areas. And then the 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 way that they uh, worked around it also was putting covenants on title that said no Negroes, Asians, Indians, etc. The people the the words from back then. So uh, that's the that was the lay of the land in Vancouver. So this black community and listen, black asylum seekers were coming to Canada since the early 1800s, trying to flee uh, the the racial violence in America. Um, the, the Canada. 
Canada was a slave-owning nation for over 200 years. Um, again, history that we don't often hear about. So Black folks have been in this country a long time, and in Hogan's Alley uh, for this region is one of the areas where they settled. Um, but it was over time um, that the city and uh, using and harnessing the programs at the federal level uh, disinvested in this community, uh, created basically a slum by neglect, um, by putting industrial uses adjacent to their lands. Again, a playbook that has occurred across uh, North America and then eventually planning a freeway right through the heart of the city. So at the time, um, you know, the, the black population there had a church that had 800 members. They was, it was a thriving community. There's lots of um, stories and photographs of, of, of establishments and shops uh, there. Wade Compton has done uh, some great writing. Uh, Adam Rudder did a master's thesis on the community. And so as the city of Vancouver was planning to uh, redevelop the Northeast Falls Creek area, those of us who were uh, connected to the story either personally or through our research we put up our hand and said, hey, hang on, you have to do a really meaningful engagement here with the black community who have really suffered the brunt of the Georgia and Dunsmuir Viaduct construction um, by their utter displacement and utter erasure from Vancouver. Uh, it has always puzzled people who come here to Vancouver and say, hey, it's a big Canadian city. We don't see a lot of black people here, uh, you know, different than Montreal and Toronto and Edmonton and Calgary. And, and I think I would argue that the erasure and the destruction and the dismantling of this community has had a lasting impact. Um, and the anti-blackness that has pervade, pervaded um, Vancouver policy and government has has had an impact. So those are the kinds of things that have brought us to the table. And in the time that we've been working with the city, um, we've watched at least the former council pivot. Uh, they they weren't on this track. They didn't see uh, cultural redress or uh, reparations as their mandate. Um, but we've been very diligent and being very clear that this was their obligation. Um, and so the, uh, to their credit, they did pivot, they did move staff. Um, we worked with some fantastic staff from the Northeast Falls Creek planning team who we watched their whole, you know, minds blow, <laughs> I think, learning about this history and then understanding the responsibility that we all have to this history of people's lives that were impacted. And now the Northeast Falls Creek plan has a chapter in it called Reconciliation. And within that that plan, it, it addresses the indigenous community, of course, uh, whose land this was, you know, uh, stolen from. It addresses the Chinese community who was in this area and also had impacts, Japanese community. And then it addresses the black community and the goals that we have for this land. So we're, we've been working with the city of Vancouver, uh, specifically addressing the east block of Main Street that sit right under the viaducts. And our proposal has been for a community land trust. Um, so that all of the residential space would be nonprofit owned, with the majority being below market, 70%, um, that there would be opportunities for small um, economic development opportunities. This town has got a housing affordability crisis and a commercial affordability crisis and, and amenities and just um, cultural spaces. So we want to see this held as a not-for-profit so that these spaces can be offered and give opportunity to people of African descent and others to create uh, homes in life here in a way that we've been kind of stunted and disconnected from being able to do in Vancouver. So it's been very exciting. It's uh, a conversation that I think people are paying attention to. We're connecting with other groups across the country uh, who are pursuing land trusts, like in Parkdale in Toronto, Herringate, who's dealing with a major eviction there, uh, groups in, in, uh, in Quebec. 
all folks that are trying to see housing justice in their communities for various reasons and for low income and racialized people. So it's been just fantastic, and we're hopeful. Uh, we haven't met with a lot of the new council yet, but we're hope we haven't met with any, frankly. But we're hopeful um, that that they will see the importance of continuing this, the implementation of this vision and this policy, um, because we're very excited to be able to deliver something that you know people in the city talk a lot about the Vienna model. Um, I've joked about how tired I am hearing <laughs> about the Vienna model, um, because there's lots of great cities in this world that have great programs, but um, you know, I think our proposal to make sure that all the six, you know, 600 odd, 550 odd um, homes that are developed here are actually held in public hand, that the city does not sell these lands, that they are retained in their city's hands, and that they're leased out to a nonprofit who would, our nonprofit who would uh, deliver on these um, vision, the vision and the affordability. So we're excited that that's moving forward. We've had broad support, and I think it's it's galvanizing people behind an idea that um, there is a chance for justice to happen. We're st- we remain very, very optimistic that we can keep going. And it's been awfully hard because while we are an un, you know, we're all volunteers, we don't have funding to have an organization yet, um, but we've had really wonderful support. We've got support from BC Housing recently and um, in, con- in coordination with the Temporary Modular Housing Project that will be going up uh, on Union Street there uh, coming up in February. So that's going to be one of the first things that roll out. It was a great opportunity to cite that kind of critically important housing and prioritize Black people who have, unfortunately, are overrepresented in in homeless population here in Vancouver. Uh, Really exciting and a long overdue conversation in the city. And I I hear a lot of uh, conversations as well by people outside of the city really excited about the possibilities of uh, what can happen at at Hogan's Alley. Yeah, and I mean, thank you to you. You spoke at the 2015 hearing. I saw you there. I think it was one of the first times. And, you know, a lot of folks had stood up and who were, you know, directly connected to the black community and said, we need to see a just uh, kind of situation come out of this. We need to have consultation with the black community. So we're grateful for all of that support and the continued support that people are showing us um, for how, how vital this is, because it does represent something. Um, how we treat, the, quote, the least of our society is a measure of what we are. And um, black folks, homeless folks, addicted folks, people with mental health issues, um, people who are new migrants to the city, um, you know, like these are the people that if we structure our programs around them, we're actually going to find that everything else starts to work for everybody else. Uh, by focusing on the least advantaged, we actually create better programs for everyone. Great. And I'm just going to ask you one final question, which is if someone's listening out there who's been renovicted a couple of times in the city and is uh, frustrated and living on the kind of economic margins of sort of getting by on day-to-day life, uh, what is it that we can point to that people can uh, hope for in the city when it comes to housing affordability? I would say hang on. I know that's really hard. Um, and I know when you've got, um, I know when you're worried about money, it, it eclipses everything else. It's so hard to focus. It's hard to go to school. It's hard to go to your job, um, take care of your own health. So I, I would give, tell them take heart. There's a lot of people in this city that are working very hard to make sure that you have the, the roof over your head that you deserve. And not only the roof over your head, but the, the, the respect and the dignity that everybody deserves, regardless of their income, regardless of the privilege they were born into or not. Um, and that's the work that we are busy doing. And 
um yeah i i think that uh it's hard and hang in and 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 if you can stay around stick around and if you can't it's understandable because a lot of people do leave to look for um more equitable spaces in other places in the country so it's it's not easy and um we're doing our best and you know get out there and and speak to your politicians, show up at public hearings where you can support housing projects that are going to deliver affordability if you can. Um, let your voice be louder than the voices that would exclude you. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us, Stephanie. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the work Stephanie's doing either with Catalyst or the Hogan's Alley Society in support in any way you can. Thanks to our production team at SFU, Span City Office of Community Engagement, and to Davis Steele for composing the podcast theme music. And a special thanks to Stephanie Allen, not only for taking the time to come on our show, but for all the work she's doing towards real housing justice in BC. 